welcome into the show. It is Daniel Wortman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. super early morning wake-up call. Thanks for tuning in today. Hope you're having a great morning so far. Um, Welcome into the show. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get to uh, get into a lot of this yesterday. Uh, mentioned it uh, later in the show uh, about some of the things I saw while I was in uh, Amsterdam last week, and uh, I want to kind of start the show off there um, today. One of the things that you see in an open system is quality rises. But you also see quantity rise. And that's a big thing, big piece of what is not really discussed when we look at American soccer. So I want to get into that today. I want to talk about um, a, a little bit of a comparison of what I saw in Amsterdam and what is possible in the United States, but what we're not getting access to right now. So, um, you know, buckle up. We're gonna we're gonna go through this throughout the show and talk through some of the the comparisons and the byproducts of an open system versus what we have in the United States. Why are we not kind of reaching a level uh, beyond where we are today? So the first thing I want to kind of get into is the quantity piece, which is something we we rarely talk about when we talk about promotion, relegation. We talk about sporting merit. Um, this is the mechanism that FIFA requires. You, the U.S. Soccer Federation is in violation of this FIFA statute. And um, in that that requirement is, is simply this, that if you uh, finish first, maybe second or third, depending on how the rules are written, but at least first in your league as a champion of a league, then you have earned your opportunity to play at the next league up. So if you win the USL championship, you the next year would be playing in major league soccer. That's how it's supposed to work. Um, there are secondary rules beyond that in terms of, you know, making sure that, that by a certain time, a certain date, um, you have, you know, infrastructure requirements in place and other aspects in place. But the main way, the main access to get into Major League Soccer is supposed to be your finish in the previous season. So if you win the USL championship, you should be playing in Major League Soccer the next year. That's how it's supposed to work. So when we look at... um, some of the stuff I saw in Amsterdam, you have that system in place. You have promotion relegation. You can you can see a, an amateur cl- uh, club be formed, work its way, win its way up the, the pyramid of connected leagues, and eventually be playing against Ajax. So one of the things that I really observed last week up close is 
how many clubs, the quantity of clubs. In in U.S. soccer, there's been this movement over the last few years to create these super clubs or these power clubs uh, by combining two, three, or four clubs into one mega club. And the reason for this behavior is primarily come from uh, influence from U.S. soccer. U.S. soccer has said, look, if you want to get into, into the development academy, you've got to be bigger. You've got to have X amount of money. You've got to have uh, X amount of players, etc." So U.S. soccer has been creating fewer clubs. Let me, let me repeat that. U.S. soccer has been creating fewer clubs as a standard rather than more clubs. It has been creating this environment where we, we now have fewer clubs for an area. So instead of, say, 10 options, 10 clubs, you now got two or three. And the only ones that matter are the ones that have development academy. And if you don't have, if you're in an area of the country where there is development academy access and your club isn't one, you're pretty much now trash. Any parent that wants to take the the sport serious and wants to do it by taking it serious in the way that U.S. soccer views it as taking serious are going to leave your club and they're going to go to the development academy club. And so what you, what you have seen is U.S. soccer from a central planning and meddling standpoint create chaos, dysfunction throughout the country. And they have left in their wake a reduced number of soccer clubs in the country. Now, at the same time that this consolidation uh, movement has happened, we have continued to lose hundreds of thousands of players from the system. There's a ripple effect to the choices being made uh, within the U.S. Soccer Federation in terms of how we've handled youth soccer. So whenever, whenever you see the, um, the decisions from Chicago going out into the, into, into the, you know, into all the, the state associations into us club soccer and, and, and all these mandates are coming out and they're saying, this is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. And we've seen this ripple effect, fewer and fewer clubs. It's also resulting in fewer and fewer players registering to play soccer. Double whammy. In this whole thing, in the system that is U.S. soccer, because merit doesn't matter, because you can be as great as you as you want to be and you still don't get access because of it, what we're seeing is through the meddling of U.S. soccer as well as through the 
the system that is already in place, not having promotion and relegation, what you, what we see is that clubs aren't what they're supposed to be. Clubs don't really mean anything to people. The relationship between most people in a soccer club is purely transactional. I pay you, you provide me a service. On the youth level, that means I'm paying a coach to coach my kids. They're going to babysit them an hour or two a week. They're going to play a game. They're going to teach my kids, hopefully, some things I can't teach them. That's my relationship with the club. When my kid outgrows that relationship, our relationship ends. On the adult level or in the community level, it's still transactional. I have a first team. I host a soccer match for the community. I play in a, you know, competitive amateur league, whether it's a regional league, uh, a regional league connected to other regional leagues in a, in a national footprint. Uh, if I play in a professional league, in any of those scenarios, the relationship with the club is transactional. It's let me, let me try to create an entertainment value option so that you're willing to give us five bucks, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, a hundred bucks to come and watch our match, have a good time with your family. And then when that night's over, you go home. When the season ends, you're not around. When it's not game day, you're not around. That is the relationship that American soccer teams have with their community transactional most of american soccer is at that level very surface level inch deep mile wide type of relationship no meaningful value for most people now what i witnessed in amsterdam is quantity a byproduct of the system. Quantity, meaning lots of clubs, they're not all at IX level. These clubs are are just down and and um, you know completely in a seventh, eighth, fifth division amateur level. They're they're not necessarily anything of scale. but they're a club and there's a lot of them and there are also a lot of them close together. You don't see a lot of these clubs coming together, creating, trying to create one big super club. They've got five, six, seven, eight clubs in, in one park. They've all got their clubhouses. They've all got two or three fields they they have their youth teams, they have their adult teams, and they're playing in leagues. And you see this throughout the city. Five minutes away, there's another park just like it. So the byproduct of the open system is that 
you increase access for clubs, which as a byproduct encourages more experiments, i.e. more soccer clubs. And the main thing then holding you back is not more soccer clubs. The main thing holding you back is you. Your leadership effectiveness. Your ability to build relationships beyond a transactional level. Your ability to create culture that lasts generations. This is what is a byproduct of an open system. We don't have that in American soccer. Instead, in American soccer, we have these surface-level relationships. We don't have clubs on every corner. We don't have clubs even sharing sporting complexes most of the time. We want our piece... We want to get it as big as possible. We want to merge clubs together so that we can build our fiefdom as big as possible. So we can get more power. We can get more control. We can get more money. When what we really need is our system to function properly. And if our system functions properly, we could see clubs grow out of everywhere. Every city and community. And these clubs become home. They become family. They become where you go and hang out in the afternoons. They, be, they become where you go on the weekends, even when you don't have matches. They become a social club. Football is what binds them. Soccer is what binds them together. But they become a social construct, a social bonding point for the community. And in America, there's a real opportunity to take a club and make it truly community beyond soccer. Create a club that then reaches your community in a variety of sports. Create a sporting club and have, you know, have baseball, have American football, have basketball, have tennis, have futsal, have soccer, have these different sports, lacrosse, all part of your sporting club. We're, we're just not thinking things through properly because what we know is the dysfunction of the U.S. soccer system rather than what works. So we have all of these, these organizations throughout the country trying to figure out how to make what they do work, dealing with central planning from U.S. soccer that continues to muck it up. And, uh, and we're going to get into some of that after the break. Our sponsor this half hour is Ducktick Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G Brand.com. If you're not geared up for winter or if you need a new coaching planning session notebook, 
go to ductickbrand.com. Use the promo code DWSHOW. You will get 10% off of your order. And I promise you, you're going to be happy with what you get in the mail. Ducktickbrand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. We'll be right back after this. back to the show thanks for uh, tuning in it is thursday november the 14th um so back to kind of where we we're talking about amsterdam versus what i what i'm seeing here in the united states um so part of this whole aspect of quantity quality etc is the open system and and it goes beyond just just a a a an opportunity for a first team to work its way up from you know small town America to playing you know big league soccer. It, it creates these these opportunities for deep bonds between communities, clubs, and go beyond transactional levels. This means that you have gener- generational relationships. Um, you have deep relationships, social bonds uh, between members of your club and the club itself in the community. And, and this is replicated all throughout uh, the Netherlands, uh, thousands of clubs in the Netherlands. And for a country um, that small compared to the U S only having about 9,000 uh, soccer clubs in the country, you can see how we're barely scratching the surface of our potential. So we're struggling. We're struggling because of this, uh, this worldview of U.S. soccer. And that worldview we've talked about on the show before is that U.S. soccer, um, 
believes that control and power um, and in central planning and working in uh, in tandem with Major League Soccer is what matters most to them and not merit, not opportunity, not access. And so because of that, everyone else gets limited. So if if Major League Soccer doesn't want to pay its players like uh, the Premier League, for example, then that means that every league beneath it, player wages are going to be depressed. So the lid is Major League Soccer. Um, and that's that's basic leadership principles, organizational structure principles as well. The law of the lid. Your top determines the the top for everything beneath it. So that ceiling of Major League Soccer and the way that it handles players and the way that it handles player salaries is limited. Uh, and so therefore, the entire American soccer economy is limited as well. Player wages are depressed. Transfer values are depressed. Uh, freedom of movement is limited. The the opportunities to earn revenue from television, from commercial rights, limited as well, all beneath Major League Soccer. So Major League Soccer really, um, in a lot of ways, has this view for themselves. And Don Garber's on record saying every dollar that that is in American soccer that doesn't come to Major League Soccer is a dollar lost. They want to be the federation. And they effectively are. They they basically have control uh, and and power. They are the the single most powerful organization from a voting perspective within U.S. soccer. They, by themselves, have been given nearly 15% of the overall vote over the thousands of organizations within U.S. soccer. That one organization has been given over 15% of the vote. One vote. Whatever Major League Soccer votes, when Don Garber says, this is what we want to vote as, and their vote goes in, that one vote is worth 15% of the overall election. It's absurd. And, and so what happens is U.S. Soccer works in lockstep with Major League Soccer to create rules that make it harder for everyone else. This is how they create value for Major League Soccer. So recently, we've seen this in the Development Academy. U.S. Soccer announces arbitrarily, randomly, not based on merit, but based on if you are in Major League Soccer or not. If you're in MLS and you're in Academy, you get Tier 1 status. If you're not, you're Tier 2. Setting aside the fact of whether or not your development academy teams and programs are finishing in higher positions than your MLS counterparts, it doesn't matter. In that case, not only is merit not rewarded, merit is punished. It's a problem. And we see this repeated over and over again. And the reason why on a macro level, 
this matters so much goes back to what I was talking about uh, before the break, quantity and quality in an open system. The Dutch Federation does not know who is going to be the best. They don't know who's going to become an incredible club. They know what they have, but they don't know and didn't know before they got them. They now know that Ajax is a massive club worldwide. It is a globally known club and has been for decades. It, it was struggling for a little while. It is now reascended into global prominence. Is it, does it have the resources to compete financially with Manchester City, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Bayern Munich? No. But can it be competitive at a Champions League level? Yes. And Johan Cruyff, before he died, Cruyff, he said, we can get there again, even without the money, if we develop the right players and get the right coaching. And they have. They've proven it. They made it to the semifinals last year. They should have been in the finals, if not for that tragic and uh, unfortunate mistake of not uh, closing out that, that Champions League semifinal against Tottenham. They would have been in the final. But the Dutch, the KNVB, the Dutch Federation does not know. They don't, they don't have any ability to predict the winner and loser. They do not know who is going to be successful, who's going to be able to lead, who's going to be able to build an organization of scale. They don't know any of those things. So instead, what they do is they create opportunities You build a club. You prove that you're good at what you do on the field. You earn the right to play at a higher level. And you keep doing that. And you keep doing that until you get to the level of playing against Ajax. So, whenever you look at the Dutch view, when you look at the Spanish view, when you look at other countries around the world that are FIFA compliant in this area of promotion relegation, what they're really compliant with isn't just the mechanism of promotion relegation. They're embracing what the essence of football really is about. Your club, deeply connected to its community, being rewarded for what it has done, not what we think it might do. And that is that is the crux of the issue. When you have the U.S. Soccer Federation trying to handle things from a central planning perspective, saying we think we can predict, and so we're going to sanction leagues who think they can predict what cities and what, what franchises and what ownership groups are going to be successful. You're left with a league like Major League Soccer where you have LESC, Atlanta United, Seattle, and Portland who have created good game day environments. They can draw a crowd 
and the rest of the league is a snooze fest. Now imagine, imagine that those clubs had risen on their own merit. They had already built that culture that became the wind in their sails to grow and build and and connect deeper with their community, get more sponsorships, build the buzz. Then they reach the top. And it's like taking the lid off of the 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 organization and it just explodes with passion with resources with fans they're excited the community's all wrapped up in because the, they did it together they won their way up to the top and they won admirers along the way they built fan bases along the way So while Major League Soccer and the U.S. Soccer Federation likes to go around doing central planning and predicting who's going to do well and who's not going to do well, sporting merit rewards what has already happened, what has been done. If you look at America and you were drawing up a list of cities to put professional soccer into, 10 years ago, would you have put Chattanooga on that list? No. But what did Chattanooga prove? They proved that they could build something and that their city could rally around them and they could build a club culture that would outlast adversity, would build from nothing and over a 10-year period, reach a place where they could become a professional soccer club. All in spite of the system. What they have done is so remarkable. It is not talked about enough. If they were operating as Chattanooga FC in the Dutch League, the system of connected leagues, if they were a, a Chattanooga located in the Netherlands. They would have probably already made it to professional soccer years ago and be even bigger than they are. The fact that they are have reached this level despite the hurdles, despite the setbacks, despite U.S. soccer trying to create roadblocks in issues for Chattanooga and other clubs like them, they have made it this far. It is impressive. It is a story worth celebrating. Don Garber is on record berating Chattanooga, making fun of Chattanooga. U.S. soccer has no time for Chattanooga. And yet, here we are, Chattanooga proved by what they have done that they're worthy of consideration. This Chattanooga story could be repeated all across the country in cities, in communities, in towns. They have had to walk through the fire to get where they are. 
And there are a lot of other organizations that just aren't simply able to do that. They're not able to withstand the pressure, withstand the grind, keep at it for this long to get where they are. It's hard. But if you have a federation that's more concerned with opportunity and access rather than central planning, control, power, you would unleash these Chattanooga-type stories all across the country. If you look at college sports, how many of these big universities are in cities where professional sports franchises would never dare go And yet, these colleges will outdraw their professional counterparts. You see it all across the country. Ann Arbor, Michigan. Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Gainesville, Florida. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It happens repeatedly over and over and over again. Now, imagine a federation that said, we want everyone to be a part of this. So we are going to make our rules so that what you do matters. We're not going to get in the way anymore. We're not going to stand in the way of progress. We're not going to try to limit your opportunity and access. We're not going to try to put a lid on the American soccer system because one organization wants to go at their own pace and limit everyone else. We're going to say whatever you want to do, whatever you want to build, build it. You're going to get rewarded for it. Go for it. you would have clubs pop up all over the place. And in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you would see the United States of America radically change its sporting culture. Imagine having sporting clubs across the country that have their basketball programs, they have their soccer programs, they have baseball and tennis programs as well. Imagine what those influences could do on other sports. We could radically shift and democratize sporting culture in America. And the U.S. Soccer Federation could be the leading voice in that movement. It would be amazing to see what happens. On a soccer side, we know what would happen. It already exists around the world. In an open system, you get more clubs, you get better clubs, and you get a bigger and better system, prosperous system, because of it. Not everyone's on the same level. Not every country is run as well as the other. But when you have the backbone, the cornerstone, the central piece of your soccer system being opportunity and access based 
on merit, sporting merit, what you do on the field, what you've already done, gets you access to what you get to have an opportunity to do next. It changes everything. Everything. The commercial aspects of this are numerous. The soccer ecosystem that we have in America is is a fraction of what it could be, and it's tinier than than the Dutch system, the German system, the Spanish system, because we limit it on purpose. We have, we have put a ceiling on opportunity and access to products, to services, to apparel, to gear and jerseys, all in the name of central planning. We have artificially and arbitrarily limited ourselves to prop up Major League Soccer's business plan. And it's hurting everyone else. We had on two clubs yesterday to kind of give their their point of view on this recent move of four clubs leaving the GCPL Eastern Conference to join the NPSL. That wasn't a move based on sporting merit. It was a move based on those clubs feeling like this was the best opportunity for their clubs to grow because the system doesn't reward them for what they do on the field anyway. We have a messed up system. It's completely screwed up. It limits us commercially. It limits us in the depth of our relationships between our clubs, the people in our clubs, the communities in which these clubs exist. We don't really know what it means to be a part of a club. Not a soccer club. Parents pay their fees. When their kids are done, they're done. They're not showing up to work. There's no clubhouse for them to hang out in. It is recreational programming. You're going to pay 10x the cost to have a paid coach versus a a, a parent volunteer. And that's about the extent of what a family gets out of it. Every now and then you'll find a family. Maybe they find their way into a DA. Maybe they find their, their way into a fully funded DA. Maybe a Major League Soccer Academy DA. Maybe one of them eventually makes it to, to be a pro player. Meanwhile, 99.99999% of families in this country are paying for professional recreational soccer. They're not paying to be members of a club. They don't feel like they're members of a club. They're just paying for a service. They hope you do right by their kid. When that season is over, their relationship with you is over. It doesn't have to be that way. It shouldn't be that way. 
And it's yet another way that the American soccer system set up by the U.S. Soccer Federation is hurting American soccer. Hurting American soccer. It's, it's, it's so crazy and bizarre. You go to a country in Europe and you see the football everywhere. It's because it's been unleashed. They have incentivized through their rules. And in some cases, even the way they handle their funding. More soccer. Better soccer. I.e. quantity and quality of soccer clubs. Which as a byproduct produces what? More and better players. Which when we look at our men's national team. We need more of. Let's be honest. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world. And uh, you can be a part of that story at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one. No man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thursday, November the 14th. We've been talking about on this show um, some of the comparisons, some of the things I've observed uh, last week when I was in Amsterdam. We were unable to do the show while we were there, and then I got sick um, and, and just were, were not able to kind of get back on the grind uh, when we got back. And so we got back on the show yesterday, and um, 
got into uh, kind of laying out a little back and forth um, two sides of this NPSL versus GCPL uh, situation where you had four clubs uh, exit the GCPL Eastern Conference and move in tandem to a newly formed NPSL um, Southern kind of a Gulf Coast Conference uh, with Jacksonville um, anchoring on the east on Interstate 10 and New Orleans Jesters anchoring on the west uh, off Interstate 10 and these four clubs being located uh, along the uh, I-10 corridor uh, between Jacksonville and New Orleans. Uh, From an NPSL standpoint, it makes perfect sense. From a GCPL standpoint, obviously, it's, it's a painful blow. And, um, and today I, I just wanted to really kind of get into, uh, what's, what's really going on. It's not a GCPL versus NPSL thing, although those are factors. And I think every, you know, party in this whole saga between GCPL, NPSL, uh, the, the four clubs that left and the clubs that remain in the GCPL all have uh, things that they could do better um, and, and improve on, um, such as life. We could all find things in our in our jobs and our organizations and our families that we can do better at. And I think it's, it is helpful to, to take moments like this when there is upheaval and, and, and as painful as it is to try to search and do some soul searching and figure out what, what can I can do better as an organization? Uh, what can I do better as an individual, um, et cetera. But today I really wanted to look at a macro level, uh, far above and beyond, uh, you know, situations like that and really get to why we're having these issues in the first place. And why are we struggling to have the, the growth and the level quality level, excuse me, quantity and quality level of clubs, um, throughout the country that we should be for the size that we are, uh, from a population standpoint. And, and, and really what it comes down to is that U S soccer is intentionally limiting opportunity and access for American soccer and their rules are in place to prop up the business plan of major league soccer so what you've seen is uh, organizations like the USL, for example, that have, have made the decision that if they want to be viable, they have to work with the Federation and with Major League Soccer to to do things the way that they want them done just to be able to survive. Um, and, and you look at what other leagues have done to repeat that. It's all been in capitulation to this relationship between U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer, and it it is at the detriment of American soccer at large. Our country should be bigger and better than it is 20 years into Major League Soccer. It should be, plain and simple. It's not on purpose, and that's the problem. When we look at the, uh, the landscape of American soccer, and I want to close the show today in this segment talking about where we are and, and structurally what we could do to fix it. Obviously, on a macro level, we need to become FIFA compliant in all areas. That's solidarity payments and training compensation. That is promotion and relegation, sporting merit, uh, rewarding clubs for their on-field performance as required by FIFA. 
There are no child labor laws that get in the way of any of these, um, you know, rules being Im- implemented, uh, nor financial uh, or or sponsor commercial uh, relationships being formed uh, with these clubs. All of that has been lies and public posturing from the leaders in charge of U.S. soccer to try to keep people from pressing them to be FIFA compliant. That is all preposterous. It is all garbage. It is not real. U.S. soccer tomorrow can implement promotion relegation and and full compliance with FIFA regulations, and it would not violate any American law And it certainly wouldn't violate FIFA because that's what they're in violation of right now. So they would actually become FIFA compliant. And if they did, it would radically change American soccer. Now, a lot of skeptics who are Major League Soccer fans or who, you know, have some weird obsession with worrying about billionaires um, will will parade around like, well, we got to protect the owners of Major League Soccer. We got to protect the billionaires. Look, they didn't become billionaires because they were stupid. They became billionaires because they figured out a way to get there. They did things to make themselves billionaires. And they'll do things in an open system to stay where they want to be, to earn their way to the top, to build bigger, better, stronger. I have no doubts. They're not going to want to lose from an ego standpoint to some community club working its way to the top. They're going to want to trounce them, destroy them, beat them. Quit worrying about billionaires. They're fine taking care of themselves. What we need to be worrying about is American soccer at large. And Chris Kessel and I have been talking about this uh, off the air for a while. And I want to lay out um, just a a, kind of an overview of what I think could happen and, and what I think really should happen to address the uniqueness of American soccer. America is a big continent. We are really like a continent-sized country. And when you look at that and you look at where the population density is concentrated, it does create some issues. The biggest issue is proximity, travel. We see this all throughout American soccer. It's why we need more soccer clubs, quite frankly. And it's why we need a federation. Instead of trying to limit the number of soccer clubs, it should be trying to grow the number of soccer clubs. When we look at what we could do, what we should do, is I think that we should really take advantage of what many have viewed as an obstacle as a weakness. Here's what I mean by that. The geography and the distance between population densities around this country could be viewed as an obstacle. It certainly requires, you know, if you, if you were to operate a first division with 20 teams as a national league, most 
if not all of your games that are not at your home stadium are going to require a plane trip. What I think we need to do is think outside of the box. Instead of viewing that obstacle as something that we can't get around, why don't we embrace it? and allow it to shape what we do. U.S. soccer is already split into four main regions. There's a region one, two, three, and four. They are roughly set up as a northeast kind of Atlantic area, a south that runs, you know, from Texas to Florida, a Midwest, and a west. Four regions. What I think we should look at is embracing that infrastructure. Instead of trying to think we've got to fit our square peg into a round hole and figure out how to go, you know, division one, two, three, four, and everything's national. We've got to travel and travel and travel. Let's create more of a college conference style setup and embrace the obstacle in the way there's a great book called obstacle is the way I've read it. And, uh, and in the book, he talks about just using what should be viewed as a disadvantage to your advantage. I think if us soccer were smart, they would do this. They would look at region one, two, three, and four, and they would say, look, this is going to be division two. And we're going to put major league soccer And the USL and those level teams, we're going to split them into four super conferences or four super regions or regionals. And above them, our first division is going to operate like a Champions League of America. Every year, the top four finishers in each of these four super conferences qualify to play in the Champions League style league format, cup format of the UEFA Champions League as a first division. So you are able to really create something really cool in America. So if you are LAFC and you win the Western Super Conference, the next year you are you're still playing in your Western Super Conference, but now you're also getting access to the Champions League of America level 1 or Division 1 level. And you're playing against an Atlanta United, you may be playing against a, a New York Cosmos and you may be playing against the Indy 11 in your group play. Imagine the buzz every year. Excuse me. Every year around that format. Unbelievable. And then you start to regionalize, break down geographically from there. So region two or, or level, excuse me, level two, these super conferences would have anywhere from, you know, 72 to 80 teams split up between these four 
super conferences. So if you're a major league soccer owner operator right now, these billionaires we're supposed to be worried about, we, we, we don't know what they're going to do. These guys that have already invested so much money in the USL. What are they going to do? You got four super conferences all operating at division two. Very few of them are going to get relegated anytime soon. If for a very, very long time. So you're not even, you don't even have to worry about the billionaires. They're going to be fine. They're actually going to make more money. They're going to have more commercial dollars, more revenue coming in. They're going to get bigger, better, badder, bolder than they've ever been in an open system like this. But what does that do to our, our regions? Look at the super conference. Let's take the South for a second. Atlanta United is in a is in a super conference and they're playing Dallas, they're playing Houston, they're playing New Orleans, they're playing Charlotte, they're playing uh, Raleigh Durham, they're playing uh, Chattanooga, they're playing Nashville, Memphis, Orlando, Miami, Jacksonville. I mean, you're talking about the ability to get around and see matches on the weekends all over. If I'm an Atlanta United fan, I drive up to Atlanta and I go watch my team, but then Atlanta's playing in New Orleans. I'm able to, to drive over to New Orleans and catch that game. What do we start to, to, to replicate? College football. What does college football draw on the weekends? 100,000 to Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Do you think they all live in Tuscaloosa? No. But these big clubs could start to draw regionally, much like the Atlanta Braves did for decades, unchallenged in the South, and really be able to build a massive following just by turning what is an obstacle into the way. By making our, our Division two really a, four super conferences of Division one with a Champions League sitting at our Division one level, we have just made American soccer much more viable commercially, much more viable from an opportunity and access standpoint, and much more accessible to supporters. And then you and then you localize and regionalize every level down. So you go in that Southern Conference, Super Conference at, at, at Division 2. When you get down in Division 3, it starts to break up. Maybe it breaks up into four regional leagues, kind of super regionals. And then it breaks down into smaller kind of regionalista-type leagues and eventually connecting into state leagues and then down into city leagues. And now all of a sudden, the Federation, through some leadership, has created... Instead of trying to think, oh, we've got to, we've got to do like England. We've got to go 400 levels deep to cover our country of 300 million people. Maybe we're not going down 50 levels. Maybe we're only going down 12 levels, but we've gone wide at the same time. We've turned our obstacle 
into the way. We've turned geography from a disadvantage to an advantage. And we're turning the light on in cities and communities all across the country that right now we are not even getting close to tapping into. We would unleash a sporting entrepreneurial American spirit unlike we have ever seen before. The Federation touts, oh, we got a $150 million surplus a couple of years ago. We're not even scratching the surface. Major League Soccer, the USL, NISA, all these clubs that, that, that want to play professionally. We could make a system where they would have the opportunity unlike anything they'll ever get in this closed off, screwed up, limiting system based on artificial scarcity. So when I go over to Amsterdam and I see opportunity and I see access, I see clubs on every street corner competing on the weekends, hanging out in the clubhouses, some of them dreaming of a day to play against Ajax. That could be us right here in America if we get smart about what we do and how we do it. That's our show for today. For today. Thanks for watching. Um, as always, you can watch the show on facebook.com forward slash WRKMN or at danielworkman.com. Catch me on Twitter or Instagram at danielworkman, D-A-N-I-E-L-W-O-R-K-M-A-N. Thanks for watching. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.